As of today, the 27th of January, there are approximately 471 individuals, men, women, senators, congressmen, governors, mayors, and others who have filed with the FEC, the Federal Elections Commission, as candidates for President of the United States, 471. A clear sign that the next election cycle is about to begin. Presidential hopefuls often choose the site for their campaign announcements very carefully. The location sends a message about the candidate's goals, values, and beliefs. When Barack Obama made his announcement at the State House in Springfield, he invoked Abraham Lincoln and his desire to unite a nation deeply divided by race. Ronald Reagan announced his candidacy in Philadelphia, uh, Mississippi. An unusual choice until you remember that despite its name, the city of brotherly love, the town was made famous by the murders of three civil rights workers in 1964. John Kennedy announced himself as a candidate in the U.S. Senate caucus room. The message there was that despite his youth, he had sufficient gravitas to run for the nation's highest office. And Donald Trump launched his campaign June 16, 2015, at Trump Tower in New York City. That choice signaled that he was a businessman and a Washington outsider. This brief diversion into U.S. electoral campaign history can help us understand what's happening in today's gospel passage from Luke. But first, a word of caution. There are differences. The Lord Jesus was not running as a candidate for Israel's Messiah for the simple fact that he was Israel's Messiah. But he starts off his public ministry as though he were a candidate with a soundbite and a significant venue to frame his announcement, the synagogue in Nazareth, his hometown. The location, a synagogue, is important because it roots Jesus within the religious tradition and cultural heritage of Israel. A synagogue was and is the focus of a Jewish community's prayer and study of Torah, a symbol in wood and stone of Israel's faithfulness to her covenant God. And the fact that it happens in Nazareth is also significant because it tells us that the story of Jesus of Nazareth is not a work of fiction or a myth, though some people would like to think us, make, uh, though some people have suggested that it is. Luke, with his concern for historical detail, is telling us that when the Word became a human body, he did so at a particular time in a real village with real neighbors. He had a real family with a real Jewish mother. He lived in a real town with a real home and whatever passed for an address. And if you and I had lived 2,000 years ago, we could have walked up a dusty road in Galilee, knocked on a door, and met God face to face. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all record this scene, though Matthew and Mark put it later in the Gospels when the public ministry of Jesus is already begun and well underway. Luke places it at the inauguration of Jesus' ministry. This has the effect of heightening the importance of the scene 
whose drama is shaped by the passage that Jesus reads from Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. Now, we typically resist the notion that the Lord Jesus had any political convictions. If politics is defined as the art of wielding power, then Jesus clearly was apolitical siding with none of the political parties of his day, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Zealots. In fact, everything we will hear about the public life of Jesus during the liturgy this year, every miracle he works, every meal he eats with sinners, will show that Jesus of Nazareth not only challenges the political and theological status quo of Israel, he actually subverts it because he opposes everything that has to do with the gaining and holding of power. But if politics has at its goal the flourishing of human life in a human community, then much of what he said and did has considerable political ramifications. Certainly, in the passage from Isaiah that Jesus reads from, the prophet was not talking about a purely subjective interior spiritual renewal. When God acts on Israel's behalf, he does so within the course of human history in concrete and measurable ways. It was a popular belief among Jesus' contemporaries that God would have to act in a decisive way on Israel's behalf, just as he did at the Exodus. But it also meant that God, the God who came to power, would settle old scores with Israel's enemies, the pagans, There would be hell to pay for the Gentiles with the Gentiles doing the paying. If we listen to the passage with this in the background, we might be able to catch a sense of the energy present in that synagogue. You can see the wheels begin to turn in the minds of the townsfolk. Is this the one who is to come? The one who will lead a national revival? And for his part, the Lord's answer would have been an unqualified yes. He is the one sent for Israel's liberation, but he will choose a way that will look like nothing else in Israel because it will be for the healing and renewal of Israel itself, but also for those beyond its borders. There will be judgment rendered on the nations, but it will be one in favor rather than against us. There's something odd about that quote from Isaiah that Jesus reads, because there's a verse missing from the conclusion of the passage. It ends with the phrase, to proclaim a year of favor from the Lord. But the missing words that follow in Isaiah 61 are, and a day of vengeance of our God. That omission is not merely a scribal error. Jesus simply didn't read it. The Lord Jesus is inaugurating his ministry using this passage to describe exactly what he will be doing throughout Luke's gospel. And that ministry will be about acceptance, not vengeance. This is why the gospel is called Good News. Jesus preaches about a God who is ready to receive his prodigal sons and daughters. The question is, Who will accept this acceptance and who will reject it? 
If Jesus is the one who brings God acceptance, then he will find a response in surprising places all throughout Luke and an equally surprising amount of rejection in others. This is one of the themes around which Luke's gospel turns, and it comes to a head already in Jesus' own hometown. As we will see next Sunday, his listeners will take offense in him and reject the one who mediates God's acceptance. For St. Luke, Jesus' rejection at Nazareth will anticipate the whole trajectory of his public ministry, ending with betrayal, a swift trial, and public execution. And then, three days later, the unimaginable happens. St. Luke's elegant opening, the most beautiful and literary Greek of the four Gospels, it has as its goal not merely to explain Jesus to the world, it wants the world which has turned its hostile eyes toward the Christian community to know that Christ is not a threat to Caesar's kingdom, whoever Caesar may be. The gospel does not aim to replace one human political system with another. Christ's kingdom is not of this world. He reigns in human hearts, and everywhere the church gathers for the divine liturgy. Presidents and prime ministers come and go with every swing of the electoral mood. Empires rise and fall, but there is only one who remains unchanged forever. As we gather around his altar, let us pledge our allegiance to him who alone has imperium, who alone has rule, and to whom belongs power and glory forever.